You're listening to ClearCast, the real estate fintech podcast by Clear Capital. Each month, your co-hosts, Jeff Allen and Keenan Chen, will bring you compelling stories and revolutionary ideas from the people, companies, and institutions at the intersection of real estate, finance, and technology. Want to be a guest on the show or have an idea for an episode? Email marketing at clearcapital.com and let us know. And now, here's the show. Hello, and welcome back to ClearCast, the real estate fintech podcast. This is episode 28, four touchdowns, Keenan. That is awesome. I know you're a football fan, so I thought I'd kick it off with a little football discussion. Oh, yeah. I actually had to take off my jersey, you know, for this to be more professional. (laughs) Episode 28, that's a lot. Um, I'm Jeff Allen, joined as always by my colleague and friend Keenan Chinkian. How are you? I'm doing very good. Thank you so much. I'm realizing I'm looking a little bit washed out right now. I feel like I feel a little ghostly in this uh, current light. So you do look a little ghostly, but it actually suits you. I know you're a big fan of 1980s British pop. (laughs) So this actually gets kind of a Robert Smith vibe. I guess I just won't be taking pictures for the gram today. (laughs) Take one day off if you could. (laughs) I'll do what I can. So uh, let's dig into the news. Okay. Um, Pretty exciting news coming out of the mortgage space. Um, Our friends and customers, HomePoint, uh, our big big lender out there based out of Michigan, um, nation's third largest wholesale mortgage lender. Did you know that? Uh, Just launched an exciting new program called HomePoint Cash Compete. Uh, and this is a cash offers program uh, for buyers. So um, this is the a type of model that's been trafficked in for the last maybe two years or so um, with more startup type companies, disruptor type companies. And this is now an indication that others who are maybe a little bit more incumbents might be getting into this. What does this all mean? Yeah, it's super uh, interesting to see a lot more partnership happening between, you know, what what seemed like was a more disruptive uh, approach in space, you know, starting with, with the rise of iBuying and then, um, you know, power buyers really enabling uh, home buyers to act like cash buyers and, and have more competitive offers. Um, and, and now it seems like, you know, in this competitive purchase market that traditional lenders and uh, and power buyers are starting to team up even more closely um, to have intentional programs where they're bringing it to market you know together um, you know I think you know some non-bank lenders like I think better better mortgage right at, at one point had a more of like a, a cash offer type you know or, or guarantee type program there were also it's interesting to see now you know the the, the prop tech startup world and and uh, uh, traditional mortgage lenders you know teaming up. Well, I think the fact that a really big incumbent like HomePoint putting their effort behind a cash offer program is another indication of how crazy the market is right now, um, where contingent offers 
um, are considered second class, right? And the, the cash offers will typically win. So, I mean, this is just another indication of, you know, buyers need alternative creative solutions to compete. Absolutely. And, and I think too, it, it signals, you know, that there is, there's a difference between the way, you know, someone looks at a home from an offer perspective, like what wins the, you know, wins the, 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 the bid, so, so to speak, and what it takes to get a mortgage. Those are, those things aren't always together, right? You might have to, to bid much higher uh, than, um, than what, what you normally would to just win the, win the deal and actually make your offer look better, you know, in this case, make it look more like a cash offer. But then what happens when you go to convert that to a traditional mortgage, you know, and what makes it through underwriting um, this kind of becomes an interesting valuation conundrum too, right? Like, you know, the, the price to win versus the price to, to uh, get the loan approved could be two different things. So maybe there's some interesting alignment there uh, between those, those two models ahead of time. Absolutely. And as the market starts to shift a bit, you know, um, more supplies coming on the market, um, the market gets a little less crazy. Uh, will these programs have the same value? I think they will. I think they're here to stay, um, but certainly a sign of the times that there's so many of these uh, coming out. Let's shift our attention for the stat of the pod. We're going to talk about the hottest, newest acronym in the game. Oh. And that is SFR, which stands for... I feel offended, actually. Was that an insult? No. Why would it be an insult? It just, I don't know, the way you said that it had a little bit of a tone to it. <laughs> <laughs> SFR, do you know what it stands for or do you need me to tell you? I actually need you to tell me now because I'm coming up with other 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 things. Yeah. yeah. San Francisco rice aroni. Yeah. Of course. Rice the San Francisco. <laughs> and you as a Bay Area resident, I know most of your meals are rice aroni, so that's pretty fitting for you. You know, it's it's a it's a staple here in San Francisco. People eat yeah. it breakfast, lunch, dinner. It, yeah. We're and actually kind of sick of it. You're right. Like yeah. you're getting yeah. on the trolley car. <laughs> Heading into the to the Triangle Building, um, going past um, the Full House House, which is which is what everyone calls it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, just San Francisco staples like that. Sure, sure. Anyways, Keenan SFR does not stand for that. It stands for Single Family Rental. Oh, okay, that's yeah. great. And here's the stat of the pod. It's hot in the single family rental sector. Uh, gained momentum in the first quarter. Uh, SFR commercial mortgage-backed securities issuance reached $3.7 billion in the first quarter, which is nearly 125% higher than a year ago. And occupancy rates across all single family rental properties uh, averaged 95% in the first quarter, uh, which is up pretty significantly from the prior quarter. So. What's going on in SFR? Why are things so hot? Wow. Well, uh, I mean, obviously it's gaining a ton of momentum. A couple of anecdotes. In fact, last week was the uh, SFR East conference, the IMN SFR East. And there were 1,800 attendees uh, to this, this conference. I think it was in Miami. 
and uh, you know, some of our team went and, and, and there was just that, you know, that sort of tangible uh, excitement and, and momentum. You can hear a lot of like small and medium um, players were there really looking to establish their, their business and, and grow their business. Obviously there's the, you know, the big players in the space invitation, you know, homes being one of them that uh, have really been, been dominating, but it seems like there's opportunity for a lot of smaller players to start getting involved. And even we're seeing kind of like dual, um, you know, business strategies where um, some companies are playing in both the I buying, power buying space and the SFR space all at the same time. Um, so, you know, we, rental prices are going up as well as home prices are going up. So, um, you know, it just remains highly competitive um, for a, a home buyer or, or renter, you know, out there to be able to afford getting into a, a home. So, seems like folks want to cash into that. Well, definitely something we'll be monitoring closely. The other thing that seems like it's um, attractive for companies who are more B2B companies um, getting into the SFR space is you're typically dealing with like really large entities who have standardized processes and, um, you know, want to buy product in bulk or service in bulk. Um, so it's a, it's a little bit of a more interesting market for people to talk to. Um, than kind of onesie twosie mobs and pops. Mm -hmm. Well, we are excited today and privileged to have uh, our special guest, who is Vincent Hodder, who's the CEO and co-founder of Local Logic. And Local Logic is is a company actually that we we know well, but a company that quantifies um uh, cities to match best match people to places and they do that through a number of different ways that we're going to learn about and uh thanks for for being here vincent well thanks for having me i'm i'm really excited to be here and you're you're hanging out up in in montreal so we're actually on an international call right now <laughs> that's right that's right yeah we're the office is based here and we we started the business here in montreal but since COVID hit, we've kind of went fully remote. So we have teams um, all over Canada and more and more in the U.S., which is really exciting for us. Very cool. So um, that was a really short intro. We'd love to learn more about Local Logic. Um, you know, tell us kind of who you guys are and, and what it is you're trying to do. Sure. So I think I like to start these intros with the fact that, you know, we're a team of urban planners turned data scientists working in real estate. And I think that really informs our perspective on the market and how we're attacking a lot of these problems. And so what we do is we really try to quantify everything outside the four walls of an asset. And so the thing about real estate is that it's a unique product, a unique real estate asset in a unique location. And we really try to tell the story of that location through thousands and thousands of data points that we assemble into meaningful indicators um, really trying to, 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 to express the vibe, the feeling of that location. We do that for over 250 million addresses across the U.S. and Canada. Um, and we um, make that insight available both on the residential real estate side and on the commercial real estate side, working with some of the largest brands in real estate, um, really trying to help either consumers, so home buyers, renters really make a, the right decision as to where they're going to live, where their kids are going to go to school, um, the lifestyle that the specific location will enable them to have. Um, and also working with some um, institutional investors, REITs, pension funds, 
um, and real estate developers, trying to help them understand both the potential of a site, but also the risks associated with um, a neighborhood, a specific location, and whatever use, whatever asset class they're looking to build in that specific location. And so really we're trying to bring um, thousands and thousands of data, uh, a piece of data into meaningful, actionable pieces of insights to help drive better quality decisions that are gonna have an impact, hopefully a positive impact on us building um, better quality cities, um, cities that are gonna work for people that actually live in them um, and, and trying to tie the different perspectives of these different stakeholders so that we can actually uh, get it to happen. Yeah, and it's a really hard problem to solve. There's a ton of data out there, but actually making sense of it and making it intuitively useful to somebody, that's where the real magic seems to come in. And you guys have done some great jobs in terms of displaying the information, making it make sense to people. That's pretty impressive. We definitely encourage people to check out the website. So let's talk about your journey to how local logic got started. Not a lot of people at the age of seven think I'd like to start a location <laughs> data company. Uh, maybe you did, uh, but tell us the story. What was your what was your kind of flashbulb moment that led you here? So it's funny that you say that because um, I was the weird seven or 10 year old that um, didn't want to start a, a location intelligence company, but really wanted to be a real estate developer when I grew up. Um, my, my family's been in real estate forever. Um, my grandfather was investing both in the US and Europe and had all these crazy deal-making stories. Um, and I was I was always really, really intrigued and, and convinced that I was going to be working in this industry uh, in some capacity. Um, and so I ended up doing um, a, a study in, in finance, um, started a CFA, um, went and worked for a real estate developer, kind of for me, it was very, very clear. Um, and then I quickly realized that I was one amongst many with the same finance background, the same perspective on the market, um, really didn't have any edge or differentiated view on, on specific real estate opportunities. And so my thesis at the time was, well, what if I can understand cities? What if I can understand the way that the built world actually impacts both the supply and the demand of real estate? What if I can understand how um, the way we feel is actually captured in real estate value? And, and there, we really started to realize two things. First off, there's a tremendous amount of data that was becoming available at the time. There's more and more data, open data platforms. There was more things being quantified, more tech being invested as to ways to actually start quantifying things that um, in the past were maybe more difficult to make sense of. Um, and then we also realized that um, uh, well, long story short, uh, Gab and I, one of the co-founders actually started a consulting company in real estate. We were working with some pretty big brands and we realized that these were really sophisticated, smart people making quote unquote unsophisticated decisions, right? It was, it was all about gut feel, intuition, experience, you know, they knew the neighborhood and, and they were deploying hundreds of millions of dollars into assets without real kind of objective understanding. And, and we felt like, from a financial point of view, if I put my finance hat on, it was kind of irresponsible and you wouldn't see that in any other asset class. But then from a urban planning perspective, it was dangerous. It was dangerous because um, these were the folks that were building our communities. These were the people um, that were building the, the neighborhoods that we all get to live in, the decisions they were making as to what to build where and what capacity and for whom had huge ramifications on the types of communities that we were building, how sustainable, how equitable they would be. And we felt like um, 
there was an opportunity to use objective data to quantify the impact of those decisions on the financial side of things, but also on the um, on the kind of community building or city building side of things. And so um, we took the gamble, and, and at the time it wasn't a startup, right? We, we weren't we weren't saying we're going to do this, um, uh, but rather we were saying we think there's a real opportunity for this, and kind of. We started while we were still in school and uh, and kind of pursued and we signed a customer and then we signed another customer and then we kind of built more product and then we raised a bit of money and and you know we joke around saying this is the longest school project ever like it's the never ending school project and so here we are five or six years later and you know we're 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 now starting to really impact some pretty large scale decisions and that's incredibly exciting incredibly motivating for for us but also for the team that we've been able to assemble. That's a super cool story, uh, and uh, never ended school project. I love that. Yeah, you know, you know. So as, as you've gotten deeper into this, you obviously you you came into it with a particular hypothesis, but based on the data that you have had access to and the way that you've been um, trying to enable, you know, more objective decisions with that data, what's been well? First of all, what what data is most Important. Like, what are what are some of the signals that you're seeing, um, you know, that really do influence the the livability and and the and decisions, you know, for a particular city? And then, did anything like super surprise you? I guess the the deeper you've gone, like, has has anything messed up your your maybe original hypothesis? Yeah, I think that's a it's a really interesting question. So, and I'm going to have a boring answer to that question, fortunately. But <laughs> it, you know, the answer is it depends. And I think that's the that shows the difficulty of what we're trying to do. Essentially, the way we view cities is like, it's this incredibly complex ecosystem, correct? Where um, every single facet of a location or, or, or of a specific neighborhood actually influences kind of the feeling vibe, right? So it goes to things like canopy coverage or the, the percentage of the street that's covered by trees, the sense of enclosure, so the ratio between the height of the buildings and the width of the street, right? If you're on a really wide street with low buildings, it kind of feels open, it's less comfortable. Um, it's gonna be things like, you know, how many bars are around, right? Like that dictates if there's people at night. Um, there's all these different things that you need to understand and, and quantify. And then and then all these things are interrelated, right? So if you have great transit, um, there's more people that are going to be um, there at all times of the, the, the day. Um, there's destinations to go to um, and, and they influence themselves, right? Um, and so the reality is that if you look at the different stakeholders that are part of, of the decisions uh, that, that are related to city building or even like an investor, every investor is going to have a slightly different thesis. They're going to have a slightly different take on the market. And the difficulty is that we need to be able to isolate those different variables for each of those customers. And so long story short, we need to be able to quantify everything because if we don't have that holistic perspective, it's very hard to make sense of, well, what's the value add of this new bike lane that we suggest? Or what's the value add of bringing in a grocery store on the, you know, on the, uh, 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 in a specific new building? And so, um, so I think that's what's most surprising is the difficulty with which, um, you know, the difficulty to go and capture all those elements. Um, the second thing is, and I think we, we, we alluded to this a little bit earlier, I think nobody wants more data. Right, people have a ton of data. Um, they have more data than they can, you know, do anything with. And so, the real value prop, the real important, the most important thing that we can focus on as a company, when we think about building products, is is about the insights that that data deliver. 
um, we need to go answer questions that people have. You know, folks are saying, should I invest here? Is this house the right house for my family? Those are the very important questions people are asking, and we need to go and build products on top or in, we need to build, have data, build insights on top of that data, and then build products that distribute or visualize those insights in a way that to answer those questions. And I think that's kind of our philosophy moving forward. Um, it's really hard to do. <laughs> um, I don't think we're, 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 we're always successful at it. But that's kind of the way we see the world and, and, and what we strive to do from a product building and company building point of view. If it was an easy problem to solve, the market would be very crowded. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think I think like we were we were naive enough um, to to take this on, um, and, and today we're in a good position where kind of we did all the or we did a lot of the unscalable things. You know, back in the day, we we called up thousands and thousands and thousands of municipalities in the U.S. that physically called them up for data. Um, like that's not scalable, right? But now. <laughs> We did that. We built tech to automate a lot of that. Now we have this crazy pipeline of data that's like really hard to replicate, right? And I don't think anybody with any sane person would want to take that off anymore. <laughs> yeah. So let's let's talk a little bit about um, about. I mean, you guys are located in Canada, as we've discussed, that's where you got your start. But now you've really expanded quite a bit to the U.S. and you're managing data sets for the U.S. and for Canada. Um, is that difficult? Are the property data markets very different between those two places? And, and why stop there? Why not Guam next? Or um, Yeah, <laughs> we'll see. But uh, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's certainly, a, um, so I think being a Canadian startup, um, there's some clear advantages to that and there's some clear disadvantages to it. Um, we, we, we recognize that the real opportunity is south of the border for us. Like the reality is that Canada is an interesting market. It's, um, it's where we got our start. It's where we can de-risk a lot of the initiatives. We know it well, um, but you know, we know that to have the impact we want to have in the world, we need to go and work in the U.S. And that needs to be the primary target. And so, um, you know, over the past few years, we've worked really, really hard to go and expand there. Um, you know, more than half of our business is now there uh, in terms of client count and revenue, which is really exciting for us. Um, that being said, I think being a Canadian business, well, first off, you get access to some amazing tax breaks and, 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 and R&D credits. And so we'd be foolish to not do that here. Um, the Canadian government is quite generous um, on the innovation side and on the startup side. Um, and, you know, we're an hour and a half away from New York um, in terms of on a flight. So it's not that bad. Um, that being said, the data landscape is dramatically different. Um, there are certain data, data sets in the U.S. that are commonly available. Um, you could purchase there's a bunch of vendors for it that just don't exist in Canada. Um, so a good example of that is school information and school catchment data. Um, that didn't exist in Canada. Um, there was no vendor that you can go to to buy. So uh, we actually are still one of the only vendors that have that accessible. Um, whereas in the US, that's not the case, right? There's a ton of people that do that. Um, and there's a ton of examples like that where we had to kind of be creative in the way that we get access to data in Canada. And, and that's, been, that's been good for us in some instances, but also been a huge headache in, in others. Um, as we move to the US, I think there's also uh, kind of different realities um, that we have to Play around with both on the kind of go-to-market strategy, the type of customer we go after. Um, so there's been adaptation. The reality is that you know we have a team in the U.S. now. We have um, a chunk of the business that actually is based there. We're recruiting um, everywhere in the U.S. We have folks in Atlanta. We have folks in um, the D.C. area. We have folks in uh, on the West Coast. Um, so um, you know. 
I don't know if this is the case, right? I guess for most companies, like in a fully remote world, um, it's it's less of an issue than it would have been prior. So yeah. Yeah. I I, I want to go back to um, something you talked about before, which is really more about the impact you know that these private companies have on um, on communities and the impact on on, on people. When I know when one of the things that, that you've been um, expanding into is things like climate risk, things like um, you know environmental impact, social impact. Um, talk to us a little bit more about the importance of um, helping these decisions not be blind <laughs> to the impact that they have on people. Yeah, um, based on what you're doing. Well, I think, uh, and maybe this is our urban planning perspective, but I think a lot of times when you think about city building initiatives, the problems that arise is one of, um, there are multiple stakeholders, right? There's consumers buying and consuming the space. There are developers of the private sector that are actually the ones building and putting money on the table to do it. And then there's governments, be it municipal governments or others that are kind of regulating that whole industry, what, what happens, right? Through um, in some, some instances, really bad policies, or in some instances, good policies as well. And so we see it as kind of a communication uh, problem and, and, and the fact that they're in silos. So they're not, it's very hard to translate the realities or the perspectives of one to the others. So um, if I have to categorize, uh, 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 you know, if you take the perspective of a, of a for-profit developer, for example, they're all about kind of the RR, like what is this project going to give me from a financial perspective? And they don't really... They're not that incentivized to build communities that are going to be better necessarily. Um, not to say that they don't want to do it; they just don't have the mechanism, the tools to understand really the impact. And they're, they're they believe that the governments are going to be the ones kind of looking at that. Yet government don't necessarily understand the financial realities of, of a project, and vice versa. So, what we're really trying to do is say, well, guess what? Um, what you build where when you determine what we call highest and best use for a parcel of land, the output of that decision will have huge impacts in how that community is developed. Um, a really simple example is there is a food desert in the neighborhood in the city and you're a developer and you come in and you build a grocery store as ground floor retail, that has a huge impact on the folks that are gonna live in that development, but also on the neighboring communities, right? You transform a strip mall, um, into a mixed-use development that has a huge impact on what folks have access to, but also on the way that they're going to they're going to get there, right? So if you think of it from a sustainability point of view, you have a strip mall. This is a car-intensive land use. Um, you're incentivized to use your car to go to and from that that strip mall. Um, no real value to the people that live around it. Um, you go and you build a mixed-use development. Maybe you put some proximity grocery or, or retail, so grocery store, pharmacy, um, daycare, whatever it may be. Suddenly, you're creating a really cool vibe, a great environment for the people that are going to buy into your projects. And I think there's value to that. But then the people that are, you know, in the neighborhood that, that are there that are maybe two, three streets over are now going to walk to the grocery store. They're not going to use their car anymore. Um, their kid, you know, they're going to walk their kids to the daycare or whatever it may be. And so um, there's, um, there's a benefit to the community. Um, and that has intrinsic value. And what we're saying is, there's value from this uh, community building point of view, but there's also financial value where the project that you're building is um, 
um, is more attractive to folks, right? You're now creating a vibe, you're creating a neighborhood that is that is a value and that people want to go to, and you should be able to recoup some some financial gain from that. And one thing we, we could we could jump in on is um, earlier in the in the episode we were talking about single family rental and, and investors yep. and how hot that that market is, and uh, you know the the decisions on where to maybe even where to build to rent, you know, uh, is coming in. It, it sounds like you're you're seeing ways that you can advise um, those investors on, on thinking more about the holistic impact of where they're they're actually putting their their, their investment in, in time yeah and, and i just thought about what i was going to say so I, I'll, I'll tweak it into this answer essentially what we're yeah. saying is you know when you're looking at sfr um, or built to rent or sfr specifically i think what's interesting is that there's a huge volume of locations a lot oftentimes those assets are spread over within different neighborhoods or within different uh different areas and so we're kind of automating um, a lot of that due diligence process so rather than have boots on the ground and go visit those assets well you can speed up the time to get access to kind of the yes no decisions on, on location characteristics what's also really interesting is that um your um you can quantify a lot of um, the future potential um, of that location. So we have customers actually using our data to say, well, what are the highest performing assets in my portfolio historically? What are the location characteristics of those assets? And then proactively understanding where similar locations with similar characteristics exist. Hmm. And so they're removing the yeah, I know that neighborhood, that seems good. I feel good when I'm there and going fully, fully, fully objective and quantifiable uh, uh, metrics to understand potential future return. So that's really, really exciting where you're kind of bringing a lot more rigor to your investment thesis. The other thing that we're saying is um, as you're holding these properties, um, locational risks are huge, right? Um, a location or a neighborhood evolves over time. Things change. Um, the, uh, the realities of um, the amenities next door are, are constantly shifting. And so you need to have a much more rigorous understanding of where that location is going, how those neighborhoods are evolving or changing over time, right? We call it internally uh, this concept of like neighborhood drift, right? Of saying, where is this neighborhood going and what is it going to look like in five, six, seven years? Um, is it beneficial to me or not? And so what we're, what we're advocating for is saying, look, location is a huge part of your investment. It drives about half of the value of that asset and you have no control over it. You can't renovate the neighborhood. Um, you can't change its use. You're, you're, you're in essence, um, you're, you're, um, you're dependent on that uh, uh, to, to, to change in a favorable way if you are to have the return you're expecting. And so you better understand it. You better understand where it's going or have an idea of where it's going. And I think that's where we can step in with some really cool, sophisticated modeling as to how, uh, um, how that neighborhood, uh, you know, is evolving or where it's going and where market demand is changing as well. So to close this out, let's talk a bit about what comes next. Um, what, what is on the horizon for local logic that gets you most excited? Yeah, so um, there's different timeframes here, but I think it most immediately, um, I think we're really, really focused on um, launching a series of, of what we call predictive products. And so we have a ton of descriptive data, a ton of descriptive insights right now. Um, we've 
uh, been lucky enough to capture a lot of um, historical data as we've we've progressed. And so um, going to market and really giving that picture, giving our, the, the capability uh, to our customers, really looking at how cities have been evolving, how neighborhoods or addresses have been changing, and then a prediction of where we think they'll be going. Um, so that's one of the big, big pieces. Um, on top of that, we're continuously expanding the amount of data or insights we're providing. So going even more refined in terms of trying to tell that story of a location. Um, beyond that, a huge um, pull from the market that we're feeling a lot of our customers are asking for better understanding of transitional risks when it comes to climates, direct and indirect climate risks, as well as help on the reporting side for ESG. And given kind of our expertise at understanding both climate risks as well as um, being able to be really, really, really efficient in kind of um, giving the context of the location, which is a big part of those reportings. Um, um, we're going to be launching some products around there. Um, so kind of continuing our push on the commercial real estate side of things, but also bringing a lot of those innovations, a lot of those learnings and, and tweaking it for consumers to be smarter, to build better experiences for, for home shoppers, or home renters. Um, and, and that's really exciting to kind of see both of those sides of the business really start to merge into one and, and provide all those stakeholders with more sophisticated insights as we progress. Um, and then, you know, geography. Uh, we're Canada, US. There's a ton more to do here. Um, Europe, Asia, you know, who knows? So, yeah. Guam, Brazil. <laughs> yeah, exactly, Guam. yeah. <laughs> well, while you're fixated on Guam, Jeff. I mean, actually, and I think Guam is actually a US territory. It's a US, yeah, yeah. Easy. Uh, we'll do that. <laughs> just, just wherever. <laughs> well, that's that's awesome. I, I, um, you know, we really appreciate the, the the time getting to know more about about you and and local logic. And it sounds like you guys are positioned in the right the right spot to uh, to to really do some cool stuff going forward. So thanks so much. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. And no, we're we're super pumped, and we're excited for the industry to kind of keep evolving, and and we'll be there every step of the way. So uh, yeah, thanks for having me on.